0: And welcome to episode number 98. 100 is coming right around the corner, Mr. Bailey. We are one day closer to dead. I am Dave Beaudry. And I am Jason Bailey. Mr. Vanilla Godzilla. And we're almost there. The pressure is on. You need to come up with a new email address because Excite is going away through no fault of our own. Well, no idea well. of our own. Um, it could be our fault for all I know. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, in addition, uh, you know, you've promised some... You made some, some big promises to the, the dozens, man. You got, you got a couple more weeks and then it's, you know, it's, it's nut cutting time. Well,
1: we don't have to put it you know, that way, Dave, but I mean I guess it is not cutting time. Don't interfere with my artistic process, Jason. No Jesus, is it a process? I'm an artist, um, god damn it. I can't work oh, under but, these conditions. Uh, I I'm not a craftsman, I'm an artist. Jesus Christ, if I have to hear that shit ever again. Hey folks, uh I'm just letting you know out there dozens that uh we got some exciting stuff happening in the next couple of uh weeks, two to three weeks, and um when I figure out what it is, you're gonna know too. So it's this is this is fantastic. I'm you know I'm getting goosebumps that we're almost at that hundredth episode. I can't fucking believe it. You know, Dave, I have something for you. I wasn't even gonna mention this, but now I'm thinking about the podcast and everything. Uh, we have a very big distinction on Spotify now.
0: I, I just found it interesting that you just now started thinking about the thing that we started doing uh, about two minutes ago, but anyway, that's, that's fine. So yes. What,
1: what about Spotify Jason? I would love to hear the that. deal. The deal is I'm so comfortable talking to you that sometimes I forget if we're recording, we're not recording what the fuck we're supposed to talk about. Such you a know, suck up. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you're a beautiful man and all that. So fuck you. But the, the deal is on Spotify. Uh, we were informed by many of the dozens out there that we now have the distinction of E. I believe it's E right next to our name, uh, basically saying that... Yeah, we, there, there's some, there's some vulgarity, uh, on our show that Spotify just wants to let the, the listener know, uh, about. And, um, yeah, do you know what it came? It came right after, uh, we talked about the wonderful Dr. Cosby, fuck you, piece of shit, motherfucker. Uh, that's when they assigned us the E. So I believe that dumpster fire is, is what got us, uh, that distinction, and I feel as popular and as cool as Two Live Crew right now. Well, so I'm very, I'm very happy about it.
0: It couldn't have couldn't have happened because of a more deserving individual or segment. Uh, am I correct in assuming that the E stands for explicit? That's exactly
1: right. My God, we too horny. I just, I fucking love it that we finally got that distinction publicly. I'm telling you, I just. I don't know. I feel like a member of the NWA and I'm not talking about the wrestling organization. So it's Spotify. Thank you very much for finally, you know, giving us that distinction. We've worked really fucking hard for it. Uh, we've never backed down from being a bit explicit or a lot explicit. Uh, but I tell you, uh, many of the dozens thought it was hysterical that it popped up right after the Cosby rant, which uh, we were told was fairly hysterical. So I'm just glad that all came together uh, right before our 100th episode. But I wanted to share that with you uh, right here on the air,
0: sir. Well, that could be a, a new rallying cry for the, for the show, Jason, or like a new drinking toast. <clears throat> Fuck you, Dr. Cosby. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. Come on, Jason. Here's you got to you your... you gotta say it back. Otherwise, it doesn't have meaning. <laughs> Here's to your death. Fuck you, Dr. Cosby. There you Fuck go. Fuck you. Uh, yeah, so that that's a little bit of uh, something going on, and of course we are going to uh, parachute out of Excite's email uh, because they are crashing uh, the it's it, the Titanic is going down, and we're still playing fucking music here on the deck. I, I actually did receive an an email uh, which got to me because Excite sent it themselves to me, uh, saying that uh, you only have a little bit longer before you know. Uh, the, 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 the boat breaks in fucking half and you are going into the perilously cold ocean. So good luck. Uh, hope you figured out what to do, uh, which we, we of course are going to figure out, meaning I am going to figure this out. I hope. Well, I, I actually just had a, an epiphany, Jason, a moment,
0: I dare say of artistic inspiration oh, here that go, can again. join in the catacombs with the rest of our, our ongoing um you know like cotton candy and the dozens and mm. the things that we've kind of come up with over the course of you know almost a hundred episodes now I think I can I can enter something else into the Pantheon if the dozens are are interested in doing so. Are you ready? I'm ready. Dozens for any email that you send us in the future uh I think it would be a a merry little gag. To end, no matter what the subject of the email, end every single email to whatever our new email address is going to be, in the few remaining time ones that we have left of Onyx site. End every one of that correspondences with "fuck you, Dr. Cosby."
1: Fuck you, Dr. Cosby. Fuck you up the ass with the Jello pudding pop. No, that's a little I too long. Just great. "fuck you, Dr. Cosby." I think is well, it's it's uh,
0: you know. Well, I more mean, concise. Can't think-
1: they could have it as their signature at the end of their emails. I mean I mean they can do whatever they like in that regard. Exactly. I mean if they still sell jello, jello pudding pops, they really need to uh find Dr. Cosby and uh rape him with them. So uh at any rate, I just I think there's a lot of exciting things coming up and thank you for taking this ride with us dozens. It's 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 been great and I can't wait for the the future here with you. Perhaps a variation of the word excite was not the
0: best uh Use of an adjective, given the context of what is currently going on with our email, but uh, I, I am with you on that, Jason. So, is there? You mentioned there is feedback, so
1: let's uh, let's get into that. All right. So, you may have known that uh, two or three episodes back, ac- actually, it was in the beginning of the. We just kind of were shooting the shit, and and that whole subject matter of the slave one origin of this name Boba Fett starship came up and we were just throwing it out there to everyone but most specifically to the mighty Joe Baca, uh who is the biggest Star Wars fan the universe has ever created uh to find out how did this name come how did they even come up with this name okay who came up with the fucking name and why did Lucas go along with it and it was not in a we got to get to the bottom of this and cancel some motherfucker. It was just out of complete curiosity, how did slave one become the official name of Boba Fett's starship, okay? Cuz Disney is now, of course, getting rid of this name uh, due to negative connotations, which in my opinion is understandable. So we just threw it out there. The next uh episode or two, in my opinion, Jabba failed us. For the first time wow. in, in his illustrious career as our, you know, basically the third host, the the uh, the unspoken host, the, the the one you don't hear, but the one that contributes the most. He's he's probably come up with at least, I don't know, 20 to 30% of the topics that we, maybe more of the topics that we talk about. Uh, he is the number one fan of the show. He's basically a a, a producer. He's amazing, but he failed. Miserably, you're not just kicking him when he's down. You're taking a piss on his corpse. Well, he's not dead yet. But the thing is, he's one day closer. We all are. But he's not a corpse, okay? He actually came back with a whole fuck ton of I don't know, and I was stunned. I was fucking stunned, man. He can tell you everything about Star Wars in front of the camera on paper in books in comics behind the scenes and this was a big i have no fucking clue and god knows he tried well last episode of course i was a dick <laughs> what's new what and exactly and i i called joe out and um boy it worked the public shaming i you know never underestimate public shaming this shit gets things fucking done and he got it fucking done. He basically is saying that he might just need um, legal fees covered by us because he started stalking Lucasfilm to get this information. But by golly, Jobaca fucking did it, dude. So, Jobaca came back after shaking down the entire science fiction internet community. And here we go. This is his email response to us. Joseph Owens the great mighty Jabaka, otherwise is known as the Tooth Fairy. The Tooth Fairy, the hunt for Slave One's origin. After being publicly shamed on last week's show, I decided to redouble my efforts to track down the origins of the name Slave One. There are many, many references as to why Django Fett named it that in Universe, but the real world origins of that name were harder to track down than Han Solo himself. The earliest known concept drawings of this ship actually popped up in 1978, and at the time it was known as Boba Fett's Starship. This would have been one year after Star Wars was released then. Uh, This is the same family friendly name that Disney is apparently now using. Then, in 1980, a patent was filed for the Kenner toy that featured the name Slave One. The patent holder was Nylos Rodas Jamero, who worked as a concept designer for the Empire Strikes Back and is widely credited with being the person who refined the design of the ship. Still unsure as to who it was that came up with the name, I reached out to the bobafetfanclub.com online. Established in 1996, they are the one of the oldest online resources devoted to everything fett. They directed me to a clip from a Star Wars celebration in 2015 featuring Steve Gawley, who was the model supervisor on the original trilogy. According to him, the model shop held a contest, in-house contest, to come up with the name A Boba Fett Ship and Slave One was the winner. Okay, who actually suggested that name and what George Lucas originally thought of it have apparently now been lost to history. Honestly, I think this is probably something the nerds care way more about than the people who actually made the goddamn thing, as Boba Fett's starship name has been used off and on ever since the beginning, including in the script and the novelization of The Empire Strikes Back, both of which I checked, by the way, because of course he did. I look forward to going through all of this again sometime in the future, when Disney digitally adds a loincloth to the rancor to avoid having to address his full frontal nudity on Disney+. Plus. But until then... Chewbacca out. Thank you very much, Chewbacca. Thank you, Chewbacca. I have one last
0: question that I hope, through his research, he will be able to answer for us, Jason. Hmm. If Chewbacca the Wookiee, theoretically, were, I don't know, burned alive in cooking oil, oh. how hot would that cooking oil have to be in order to get the loudest Wookiee scream?
1: I don't know. That when is a Dave- question that hopefully some research can uh can unveil if, if Dave if Dave Baudry in Battlefront is being digitally gang banged by Wookies and no one can hear his screaming outside of the Wookiees is he really being gang raped I don't know we may never know but I'll tell you the Wookiees are gonna fucking eat you one day how dare you always with the Chewbacca thing Dave I mean it's a classic the classics never go out of style Jason oh my god you talking about style this is funny okay so that was the feedback that's what's going on and um what do you got for us today dave well the world is a dumpster fire jason did you know that
0: i did did you know why it truly fucking is this is like the first time in like a month and a half you've actually gotten that correct i am impressed you truly are starting to think about the show before you do it a little bit not much a little bit well done jason
1: off clap. Yeah. Uh, fuck you, Dave. Okay, you. so let's let's get on with the goddamn du- You're the dumpster fire. Let's go, Dave. What, what are we how talking dare you? about today? Yeah. All right. So this
0: a little bit of, of past history, because if you don't live in California or I believe also Seattle market, you may be unfamiliar with this. But uh even if you don't live in a market in which they are dominant, I'm sure you you being the dozens out there are familiar with the name of Kroger. They're one of the largest, if not the largest, I'm actually not sure on that. Uh, Grocery chains in the country. They own, like, they own Ralph's. They own, like, I don't know, Kroger, obviously. They own a bunch of shit. So even if Kroger, the name is not uh, a big deal where you live, they possibly own whatever the dominant chain in your area is. Uh, So anyway, Kroger, through a screaming fit, When the pandemic first started, they were one of those that were putting these radio ads out like our workers aren't just workers to us. Our workers are heroes. Our workers are family, all that bullshit. But then in Long Beach, and I believe same thing in Seattle and a couple other areas in California, when there was legislation passed to get those workers an additional, I believe it was $4 an hour in hero pay during the course of the pandemic, Kroger immediately shut down a bunch of stores in a in a tantrum saying our profit margins are so thin like we can't afford that and this is what happens with government interference blah 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 blah. So they purposely closed a bunch of stores and laid off a bunch of workers as a to to make sure that this this raise did not be this temporary raise did not become a a thing that they would abide by, right? Mm-hmm. At the same time to their stockholders they were putting out releases and notifications that they were making more fucking money than they ever have and now they have just instituted right on the heels of closing all these stores because of the you know the four dollar an hour additional hero pay for the workers that they gave all this lip service to that they said they couldn't afford because their margins are so slim they just put forth a billion dollar stock buyback so that their stockholders can get enriched and that they can make all this money on, on Wall Street in the same breath that they close these stores down so that these workers that they proclaimed as heroes and family didn't get an additional $4 an hour. This doesn't have to be a long segment, Jason, because I think that fucking said it all. What is your
1: opinion, sir? Well, we have Kroger here on on this side of the nation and the, the United States of free enterprise. Kroger is a dominant force over here as well in Kentucky. Um, and I could say, you know, fuck you, Kroger, fuck you, hardcore, because the deal is that it's easy to give lip service and say, all oh, these these people are our heroes; these people are fucking heroes." Which, by the way, there are so many of those things that were happening in 2020 during the pandemic, where. I know I probably come off as a fucking asshole. I am one, but even more so because I was just rolling my eyes like, get the fuck out of here, you bullshit. Like, you're this. I'm glad you're calling it hero pay, but let's just call it what is. You fucking need these people. Okay. They are quote unquote essential. All right. But what happens the day comes around where they're not essential, not to the welfare of society to fucking you, Kroger, to fucking you. What happens then, okay? Well, we see exactly. What the fuck is happening here? So now that the mighty, mighty Tyrell Corporation is making all this goddamn money, you're now going to say, you know what? We got to get those profit margins even higher. We got to, We got to get this huge, huge amounts of buckets of money. And the and the way to do this is not just the, the selling of everything that we have at higher prices. And yes, a lot of that is due to distribution, but to get rid of all the fucking peasants, I, I mean, forgive me, the heroes uh right now so that we don't have to give them that $4 extra an hour. Get the fuck out of here, you pieces of shit. This is unbelievable. And there's, it's it just, it's exactly what I thought it would be. When I was seeing these things where grocery stores were saying this and a lot of companies were saying, this and, is an essential worker. And we how need much, that fucking worker. Bullshit.
0: Quick question, Jason. And how much money did they spend on these fucking radio and television ads blowing their proverbial right. employees instead of just taking that money and giving it to the employees as part of this hero
1: pay? Yeah, they know damn well what they're fucking doing. As did a lot of people. I could go on a goddamn rant about third party restaurant distribution companies like Uber Eats and fucking Grubhub and shit like fuck them. Fuck all of them. It's the same way. Like I was watching commercials through the pandemic. Support your local restaurant. Oh, blow me. Like it's unfucking believable the way that people spun whatever company they were with as we're heroes, we're still staying. Maybe uh, the people who you're making come into a diseased filled workplace are fucking heroes. Yeah. The drivers, but you the at, shoppers, you you the at cashiers. The, yeah, you at the goddamn top are fucking not. You are not assholes. And this is exactly, you get to tell the character and the culture of a company when they are doing well not when they are doing shitty because that's when you can see well how much are they going to take that wealth okay Jeff fucking Bezos and give it back to the little guy what what are you going to do then when you fucking got it assholes well we saw what Kroger did there it is i did not realize this cuz i don't follow
0: like wall street or or trading or anything like that like but i so i did some reading as a little bit of research for this particular segment stock buybacks were actually illegal for an extended amount of time until, I believe, the Reagan administration. Then it was part of his trickle-down economic mm-hmm. policy, where it's like, well, if we allow these buybacks, all that money will come in, it'll trickle down to people underneath. That clearly has not happened. Um, you know, trickle-down economics is an entire another segment mm-hmm. that we could spend another time on, you know, discussing and try to make it sound more interesting than the pissing on people that it really is. But... um so stock buybacks were never allowed up until then. So sometime in the eighties, um, for that, for that very reason is because it basically just enriched like the top people and really fucked over the, the lower wage earners. Cause they were not stockholders. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it should be illegal. I don't think buybacks should be something that is permitted. I don't think that legislators should be allowed to own stock during the time that they are in office. Looking at you, Nancy Pelosi, though certainly not you alone. Um, you know, and I don't think stock buybacks should be, should be legal. I think all of that is just is legalized gambling at the expense of the blood, sweat, and tears of the workers on your distribution floors, on the workers on, you know, your grocery stores, the people that had to be in front of a register dealing with assholes for eight hours a day during a pandemic, getting all these radio ads, proclaiming them as heroes, but the second they were set to get even a dollar's worth of extra compensation, the stores immediately just closed. I Mm -hmm. am livid by this.
1: Well, I mean, Dave, it, you're absolutely right about all of that. And the the deal is that the Americans here, everyone that I don't know how it is in other countries, but I know very goddamn well right here in the United States of free enterprise. You are allowed as one of our citizens to play with the stock market enough, to invest enough in savings, to have a home kind of and pretend it's yours and to live off fucking credit enough to where you are a, you're basically economic cattle. You are allowed to play the game at a level where people can fucking own you, use you and make money off of you. That's what this country has become. This is what we are designed to do from birth to fucking death. And the top 1%, I guarantee you, already know how this game is rigged in their favor. Every single bit of it. Whether it's politicians, or you came from a rich family, or what the fuck have you, okay? But for any of you out there at this point, and I know there's very goddamn few at, at you know at this level, but you cannot believe anymore that just through hard work, determination, grit, and the willpower to continue for decades, that you're going to be at that top 1%. I guarantee you, it's a pipe fucking dream, okay? And it's getting worse every goddamn day. So when you, see, when you hear stuff like this, and, and you read about it and you read about Wall Street and what these corporations are doing and how they're merging into one mega fucking city, you know, goddamn corporation where just a couple companies own the fucking world. Not just entertainment, your every bit of technology, all your food, all food distribution, your electricity. I mean, honestly, it's going to come down to like AT&T, Disney and, you know, A couple other people. That's it. Amazon. Taco Bell. Every Taco Bell. I'm taking this all to Taco Bell. And the thing is that it's really come down to that. And this is just one more fucking sign. I loved how at the beginning you introduced Kroger as, listen, maybe you don't have the name fucking Kroger, but I guarantee you, you're Ralph's you're fucking hanks you goddamn it is kroger okay it's just they they slipped in that local market name so that you kept fucking shopping there and it felt down home to goddamn you but no kroger's the the mega fucking uh, corporation here that uh, all these grocers they they declared were heroes they're now shitting all over, kicking out of their, their, their fucking livelihood, sending them packing without a fucking job because they couldn't even give them a livable fucking wage when they had more money than goddamn God. But what would Gordon Gecko say, Jason? Greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Yes. I, I believe so. So
0: Dozens, uh, if you would like to give us feedback on either your local grocery market or what your opinion is of said subject, uh, Jason, where for a
1: little while longer would they
0: be able to do that?
1: For just a little while longer, you can contact your heroes, Dave and Jason, at the following email address until it goddamn explodes. Ask Dave and Jason at Excite.com because, well, God damn it.
0: For one more month, that's exciting. Well, I know we ain't getting no goddamn hero pay. I'm fairly uh, certain on that one. Uh, but, uh, Jason, something else I'm going to mention, I was going to mention it at the top, and then it just didn't naturally fit into the conversation. So I will force feed it in now because it doesn't really fit here much better. But, nevertheless, here we are. So. Uh, For a long time, you, Jason, as well as the dozens listening, have heard me talk about Job Guys on Amazon Prime. And yes, yes, folks, Job Guys was on Amazon Prime for about a year. But big announcement, because that year is now done, we have made the decision to move Job Guys to a new HQ because on prime it was it was actually honestly a really weird thing. Um I didn't realize till after it had posted there. Um it was available to the United States clearly. It was also available in England. It was not available in Canada, which I thought was fascinating. Even if you, people had like prime there, you you <laughs> couldn't I I don't know why that was or how that worked or whatever. But to the Canadians listening, we love you, damn it. And uh so effective this upcoming Tuesday, July 27th, mark it on your calendars. Job Guys on Amazon Prime will become Job Guys on YouTube because it will be going to YouTube. It will be worldwide. It will be free. All you right. don't require, a uh, I almost said, a prescription. <laughs> it would not require you. Even. actually, You actually do need a prescription. I've been told I need many prescriptions throughout the course of my life, but nevertheless, you will not need a subscription. Anyone can tune in and watch the entire season. So Tuesday, January 27th, YouTube Job Guys moving headquarters, and we're very excited about it, Jason.
1: Yes, and that, actually, i that's how I first consumed Job, guys, because before it was released on Amazon, all the, the friends and uh, cohorts of Dave Baudry got to see it on a little private connection on YouTube. Actually, so that was just them. you. Oh, well, then it's just me. I'm, I'm Dave's only friend, and thank you, Dave, for that. And uh, it was awesome to see it in its episodic uh, format on YouTube and then watch it again on Amazon Prime. But uh, you will enjoy it. You will love it. It's fantastic um a year ago we talked about it a lot of you have seen it out there i know that dr eddie gizmo gomez is a big fan of it so uh thank you very much for watching job guys and it really is good it's some good shit it's good tv damn it and also if you do uh, if you did enjoy it please feel free to check it out again
0: leave a leave a nice review under your favorite episodes and uh, the more eyeballs we get on it, the more likely we can leverage a season two. So that is why the YouTube move is so very vitally important. And uh, I'm, I'm definitely excited to, uh, to start all over again if, uh, if a season two is, is in the future. But even if it isn't, uh, we're very happy to bring it over to YouTube. We're very thankful to Amazon Prime for the year that we have had. And now we're looking to the future with YouTube. So, Jason, that was that uh, bit of selfless, shameless self-promotion for the week. Uh, For our second subject, why don't you start out? Because this was something you had initially wanted to talk about. um, And then I actually saw the film in question, which I believe you haven't. So it's it's kind of a weird little shift as far as you wanting to talk about it than me having some more information than what you necessarily have. But go ahead and start it
1: out. Let the dozens know what we're talking about here. Absolutely. So um, a very, very big hero, man crush, epic human being uh, that I respect the shit out of in my uh, professional life because I've been in the restaurant business uh, for, Jesus Christ. I mean, we're talking over 20 years. I can't even believe I said that. Roddy Piper, Um, we know, man. No, no, uh, Roddy's my other guy. But uh, this this is a hero of mine, and a lot of people out there is uh, the late... Great Anthony Bourdain and um, Chef Bourdain out there has a there's a documentary on him uh, called Roadrunner, and I have seen so many reviews about it, and it's odd because I'm reading the reviews in restaurant industry shit that I am associated with, so I'm not reading it or getting these reviews through, let's say I don't know Variety or the Hollywood Reporter or whatever the fuck Rotten it is. Tomatoes. There you go. I'm getting it through a lot of other uh, different deals that's mainly places that you would normally get a review of a restaurant, which is fucking awesome, by the way, uh, that that, that's happening, that our industry, the the hospitality community loves Anthony Bourdain so much. He's just like sacred to us. So I've, I've read many reviews. There was some controversy surrounding uh, said documentary, and I would love to uh, hear what Dave thinks about this documentary very soon. But uh, yeah, he's a hero of mine and uh, a lot of the people in the industry because of who he was as a person. And of course, his uh, committing of suicide at the end of his life um, really... um was horrible, uh, obviously, for everybody that loved him so dearly. But uh, I had, you know, we have talked about that aspect in other uh, podcasts that we have done. We've touched on a couple times about suicide, and how, you know, it can go along with, a mental disorder, uh, deep depression. But I also think that Dave and I have thought about suicide in different ways than most people publicly, where, you know, I don't look at someone and say, what a coward and what of this and what of that. And we do not, you know, shame people uh, for for these things. And so I was interested in seeing the documentary because of an A.I. situation uh, with uh, some A.I. vocal uh, narration which is they're calling it deep fake vocals, which I would love to hear what Dave thinks about that. If he even knows what that I'm speaking of. And then also just the documentary itself. I'd love him to give a review on it before it comes back to me. And I I talk about Anthony Bourdain in a, in a hospitality way, but I'm very excited to talk about him because he is a hero. He's a very unique person and, and somebody that I miss being on this planet dearly, as much as I miss like a Roddy Piper. I miss, I miss this man being with us. So Dave, what were your thoughts on Roadrunner, the documentary about Anthony Bourdain?
0: Well, I'll, I'll do my best to not spoil anything. There's, I'll, I'll say this. First let, first, let me address the AI thing because I had been aware before seeing the film, I had been aware that there was a, a controversy surrounding the use of an AI voice essentially impersonating uh, Bourdain at some point during the film. Did not know exactly where in the film it was. And there was one spot where I'm like, oh, it definitely had to have been there. And then apparently there's two other spots. Apparently it got used like three times throughout the course of the documentary. The director explicitly said it was in this one spot, which I was correct about because it was an email that Bourdain had written that he never would have narrated. So therefore, you know, um, it, it made sense that it would be used there if anywhere. Um, and then the other two spots again, who knows, but, um, I do think the controversy to a degree has overshadowed what I think is, is a remarkable film. Um, I can tell you that not knowing where this AI voice was used, this, the second Bourdain's narration comes in at the beginning of the movie, because for obvious reasons, it's used throughout, not the AI, but I mean, Bourdain's actual voice, because they have so much footage of him talking and narrating. And, you know, so they could use a lot of that in the context of the, of the documentary. Why wouldn't they? But uh, the first time his voice came, you know, on screen or through the speakers, I found myself wondering every time I heard him talk, like, oh, is that is that the AI? Is that the AI? So it was, it was it overshadowed a little bit the actual film itself, which I think is unfortunate because the one time we know it's used is again where um, it was an email that he had sent to a friend of his that is very relevant to his story. And I do think that I, I, I was not upset by it because one, the filmmakers were honest about it um obviously they didn't mention it in the film itself this is an ai recording of anthony bourdain because i mean that would just break the entire flow of the thing but i mean you know in the marketing of the film in the interviews they've given about the film or whatever like they were very transparent about their use of this technology and, and why they did it uh it was words that bourdain had actually written that they just didn't have voiceover narration of him on so if they could do that and add it in in a way that did not sound artificial and did not you know, detract from the subject, then I don't have a problem with them doing so. Now, they have said they they weren't going to say when where the other two sections were used. My only concern would be if they used it in a way where they had him saying something that he never in life actually said or written. And I don't believe that to be the case. I think that's the danger of that type of technology in a documentary environment is because then if you were of the mindset, you could basically make your subject say or do anything. And I think that can be problematic. But as far as how it is used, for sure, in this documentary, I did not have an issue with it at all. I thought it was an excellent portrait, portrayal. Uh, It was fair in its criticisms. It was honest in Bourdain's own shortcomings, partially because he was so honest about what he saw as his own shortcomings. Um, so I didn't think the documentary like was simply fan service. I didn't think it was like drooling over him. I thought it was a poignant, well thought out, well executed. Um, I don't want to say obituary cause that would imply that it really dealt more with his death than it necessarily did. I will say people looking for a specific reason as to why he committed suicide may come away disappointed. Um, because you know, he did not leave a note. Um, so the, and they're all very careful filmmakers and subjects, his ex-wife and, you know, people who are, who knew him and were around him. were all very careful. I think in their interviews to not try to put words or thoughts into his mouth, um, which I think is only fair. So if you go seeing it, looking for some greater perspective as to why the suicide happened, you may be disappointed if that's all you're hoping to get out of it. But if you're hoping to, as for kind of a a love letter to him, that is also honest about who he was as a person and not just as a public persona. Uh, If you're interested in a lot of home video footage that showed him when he was not on television, uh, if you're interested in the perspectives of the people that were closest to him, that knew him the best and what they were both angry with him over, loved him over, you know, rejoiced with him over, reminisced with him over. I think that this was fabulously done. And if you're not familiar with Anthony Bourdain, I still think you will find this a fascinating documentary because it was a fascinating person. And I think the documentary stayed true to who he was as a person, and therefore a lot of that was what endeared him to those around him that both knew him and only knew him from television. Because he was so open and transparent with his personality and honest about his own perspectives and flaws and all of that, it made people who had never met him feel like they knew him. You could say the same about Roddy in a different in a different way. Um, I think this stays true to that, very much so. And I don't think the from what I could tell, I don't think the documentarians did anything um, ethically ambiguous or ethically dark. Um, I think they stayed true to the person, and that everything was done with the best of intentions. That's that's my general thoughts on it, Jason.
1: Yeah. I, uh, you know, from, from what I'm reading from, like I said, hospitality insiders, there's a few things that, they, that keep coming up again and again. I'd love to get your, your feedback on this if it's at, cause I'm gonna go fucking see it when I get a chance, very obviously. <clears throat> but they say that as far as a art house documentary piece, it's very, very well done. They say it's uh, beautiful. That the cinematography is gorgeous. Uh, they say that is poignant in the music selections that they make because it reflects also Anthony Bourdain's love of music and you know all of that. It captures his spirit. They say that a lot. Um, the, some of the main um, negatives and criticisms that they pull away from it. Yes, there is that. That every time that there's a narration, because that information was pretty, pretty out there. There is that it takes the, the listener out of the moment going, is that him? Is that him? Did he say that, which can be distracting to lose yourself in the, the art that you're, you're seeing uh, the, the, the filmmaking piece of work that you're seeing. And so there's that. And then the, the big criticism beyond that is that you, if you walk in, you're going to get a flavor, a taste, uh, you know, of Anthony Bourdain, you're going to know, his persona in a way that maybe you didn't know before or just, you know, it's a, it's a deeper knowing of him as a human being. What they, the criticism is they definitely do not get to the bottom of goddamn anything in this at all. And not just his suicide, there's not a lot of questions, that get answered about his childhood, about his first marriage, why it ended, a lot of his own personal demons, why he turned to them. um, and I'm just saying what I've read right. once again, this is not Jason Bailey's opinion. so um, they're just saying that there's you just don't really get to he's still very much you know, it you know like an enigma. Uh, you know, you're getting as much as he allowed you to know, but there's not much that the documentary um, uncovers under some stone somewhere. It's like, aha, this is some more of Anthony Bourdain you didn't know about for fans of his. Um Quick g- question, would you, would you say any of it? Th- yeah, go ahead, buddy.
0: The, and it'll make sense why I'm asking momentarily. Yeah. You, have you or have you not read the book Kitchen Confidential?
1: Yes, of course. I figured so. Okay. Did yes. he discuss his childhood much in that book? He did, he did to a certain extent. Yes. But there was that, there's nothing in it that you'd be like, aha, you know, there were, it was just some stuff in there that he would talk about. Right. These are memories I had. This is what my, I did for my schooling. Shit like that.
0: I mean, I can't speak for the filmmakers. I don't know if they have commented on this. So, but if I had to guess, because they do talk about the book quite a bit in the beginning, but sure. the bo- the, 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 sure. the documentary basically starts right as that book is coming out. Okay. Um, and then it moves forward, you know, in time from there. Um, My hunch and what I felt watching it was that the filmmakers purposely wanted to be more of a companion piece to the book than replace the book. Like he spoke of his childhood to a degree in the book, so therefore we don't want to go over it in the movie because we already have his own words on it in the book, like read the book. That was my take on it. It also probably made it a little bit easier for them because then you have all this footage of him from the time the book came out where obviously he became a, a bigger name celebrity. So they had a lot more B-roll footage of him to use for the purpose of uh, a documentary than they necessarily would before most people knew who he was. So my my thought on that was that they didn't cover his early life mainly because they let his book speak for itself in that regard. And that was that was the extent to which he wanted that story
1: told. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't personally see that as, as a negative personally. Okay. Um, so at any rate that, you know, I can't wait to go see it. And Dave seems, seems to think, you know, from what I'm getting from him, that it's a very good, uh, documentary and something worth seeing, whether you know uh, a lot about Anthony Bourdain or not. But I wanted to just speak uh, quickly on this is that I think the reason I know that, you know your girlfriend. You know she admires Anthony Bourdain a lot. Yes, and uh, she has I described at, him as her Roddy Piper. There you go. And I in the in the restaurant universe, that's pretty goddamn accurate. Yeah, that's pretty fucking accurate. Uh, it, it you see someone with a lot of humanity, with a lot of fucking turmoil and problems, and he's just putting it all out there for you to see, and he's got a sensitivity that other people in his industry might not have and certainly a viewpoint. And so that's a very, very good, um, uh, kind of comparison, honestly, to make, um, but the reason why, and I want to explain this to a lot of people, I know we have a lot of people listening to us that are in the industry. I know we, and when I say the industry, I'm not talking about the, the movie industry. I'm talking about the hospitality industry. And and this is for you guys, you already know this, but for other people who don't, the reason why Anthony Bourdain is just looked at like a fucking rock star is because he really, he was an executive chef. He was trained yes but what Anthony Bourdain really was was a frustrated writer who was a line cook uh, for most of his fucking life honestly he wanted to be a cook or a chef because he thought they were fucking rock stars when he would see them as a youth he wanted to have that kind of rock star life as a culinary person, even before that's what was portrayed on the food network. And later on on reality television and shit like that. Okay. That's how he looked at them. And so that's what got him into it. But by night, and that was like in 78, he graduated from a culinary school in Jersey. Okay. But by 85, he was already writing and try and trying to give out little crime stories and things to any publication that would take it. And he was a frustrated writer. That was a fucking line cook. And there's a big difference between a chef and a line cook in the public imagination. I think a lot of people, when they hear Chef Anthony Bourdain, who don't know the industry, think of him as like, well, he's like a Gordon Ramsay. He's not fucking Gordon Ramsay at all. Gordon Ramsay came into this world to become a Michelin star motherfucking chef. He wanted to be the heavyweight champion of fucking chefs, okay? He's a whole different fucking level. He knows how to cook. He, I mean, he is magnificent. That was not Anthony Bourdain. Anthony Bourdain was a fucking line cook in Jersey and then in Manhattan who worked his way up in the industry while writing on the side, trying to figure out how to make it as a writer, okay? So many people in my industry are drawn into the industry, myself included, not because we fucking love the hospitality industry, but because it's something we had to do to support another passion that we had. Then, lo and motherfucking behold, you get drawn into it if you're really good at doing it and it becomes your life. And you'll have times that you hate it. You have times that you love it. But one thing never changes is that the people you're working with are the hardest working motherfuckers you've ever worked with. The most passionate people. And, and I have worked in LA and New York City in the entertainment industry. These motherfuckers ain't got nothing on the hospitality industry with work ethic or drive. Not one goddamn thing. And, I, and my foot's been in both camps for so fucking long. But there was one episode of one of Bourdain's shows that he they he said the emails kept coming saying, you call yourself a chef, but we've never seen you cook. We've never seen you make a goddamn meal. Okay, he was the first one to say, I, that's not my forte. I became an executive chef because... I just kept working my way up the fucking ladder. Okay? He went back to his restaurant in New York, and I believe it was Leal that he... he That was his main one where he was the executive chef. Yes. But I think he went back and he... He did what he did, which was a line cook. For all of you, I don't know if you know this, a line cook is like a piece of machinery that makes the same fucking thing again and again and again and again, with just very minor details changed based on what the goddamn guest wants, okay? And he did it every day All day long. He would do two shifts. He would do the morning shift and he would do the night shift. I have a personal connection that's a weird one with Anthony Bourdain. When I went to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, our fucking bar that we would go to afterwards, okay, just to get lit up, was Desmond's, okay, this bar called Desmond's, this little Irish shithole fucking place that was magnificent. This was where Anthony Bourdain would go between his a.m. and p.m. shift, get drunk so he could go back and continue working on the p.m. And it's just one of these things that it's magnificent to think this human being at the age of 43 wrote a book, Kitchen Confidential, that talked about the love he has for being a cook, for the restaurant business, for the hospitality business. And that's what propelled him. And he actually became goddamn larger than life movie star esque at forty three forty four forty five in nineteen ninety nine he actually you know wrote the article read this before you eat which two thousand a year later became kitchen confidential, which I recommend highly okay Anthony Bourdain is the most authentic in this book because he wasn't molded at all in any capacity by you know whether he was working for CNN or the Travel Channel or the Food Network whatever the fuck it was it's pure Anthony Bourdain it's so goddamn good that after Sex in the City ended the producers were looking for another show on HBO that would be like a male type version of Sex in the City they chose Kitchen Confidential like a fictional version of Anthony Bourdain's life and they they cast Bradley Cooper, who at that point in time was just then getting known as Jack Bourdain, which he was playing sort of an Anthony Bourdain s character. This show never took off, but it is worth looking up and and really looking at this show because it's fucking fantastic too. It I think it lasted not even goddamn. 13 episodes, okay? But this was the start of kitchen culture becoming rock star culture. And it was all Anthony Bourdain. And it was not, look at me, I can make the perfect souffle and I know how to. No, he was a fucking hardworking motherfucking line cook, a grunt that worked his way up from the bottom and had a creative skill that was unmatched and brought that to the world. So for us here in the hospitality industry, we we can't believe it. It's like one of our own fucking made it yet. One of our own, one of the hard ass working motherfuckers that was never supposed to, you know, be the movie star that was going to get the attention that didn't go to a fucking Michelin star restaurant, culinary school in Paris, France became this world renowned chef who was authentic. He, he, He really cared about the common man, the common people, society. He was a good person. And then to see this tragic ending that happened to him is just, it is tragic because he's more than any other person that made it in the culinary world and really the restaurant world. This is the one that we look at like we love him because he's us. He's the real People in the hospitality universe. So I just want to throw that out there about why he's a hero to us for anybody that just knows him from his television shows, which that's fine to be a great fan of his for that because he deserves that for God's sakes. He deserves all the credit in the world, but we love him because he's one of us that told the truth about the the pitfalls of the industry and the, the greatness that is the industry, which is really the people. So... I, I can't wait to see Roadrunner. I can't wait to see this this uh, wonderful documentary about Anthony Bourdain. But um I just I couldn't let this moment pass without me being in this industry for over 20 years and explaining why we're so goddamn passionate about this man.
0: Last thing I'll say is I saw one uh, little bit of of I don't know if I don't know if I'd say controversy, because I don't know if this was widespread or if it was just in this one review. But uh, where someone, the writer of this particular review, complained that it wasn't just the AI voice that was, you know, artificial, quote unquote, but also that the, and I'll be selective in how, I'll, I'll, I'll be speaking purposely generally so as to not spoil anything, but that the ending was um, not spontaneous. And it's like, well, yeah, of course the ending wasn't spontaneous. Like if you watch the film, the way that it ends, clearly there was some pre-thought put into that That didn't mean it wasn't genuine. And I don't think it was anything that was presented as something that just was fly, you know, seat of the moment, whatever. Like, I think they were making a complaint about something the movie wasn't stating. And I thought that was really weird. I had no issues with the ending. I didn't feel that the ending was dishonest. I didn't feel that the ending was in any way manipulative. And I thought the ending was true to himself, his friends, and his personality. And I, I didn't understand that. So, again, I'm speaking purposely vaguely because I don't want to spoil anything for anybody. But I would encourage you, whether you're a fan of Anthony Bourdain or not, um, even if you just like documentaries or well made film or whatever, I, I do recommend seeing Roadrunner. I think it is worth your time.
1: Very good. I, I certainly will. All right, Jason, last topic of the week. Shall we? Yes, we shall. Um, I want to talk uh, very specifically on this wrestling segment. Our Cracker Jack prize in the bottom of the box every week. We thought we think about what should we discuss today? What should we discuss? And you know, I just thought when, when the question came up, what in the wrestling universe merits talking about? Uh, that we should go back in time into a very important part of wrestling and professional wrestling, the business itself and the presentation thereof and talk about something that we've, I think we've touched on. Uh, obviously we had to have over the last several, you know, almost a hundred episodes, but something I really want to talk specifically about tonight is the commentation, the commentators uh, of professional wrestling of the matches themselves, the voice of wrestling, <clears throat> because It's very, very important, and it's something I think that goes... It's not as credited or noticed as much as the in-ring performance of the wrestlers, of course. But it's something so integral that without it, what you're seeing seems naked. It seems like something is wrong with what you're viewing because we've gotten so used to the commentators being part of the storytelling process. And over the years, there have been great ones... There have been not-so-great ones. There have been great duos that have teamed up to be a commentating pair that is just absolutely ingrained in the history of pro wrestling and in the nostalgia and memories of the fans, the Marks, such as Dave and myself, and a lot of you out there. So I just want to talk about it real quick and really bring to the forefront how important having a good commentator or good commentators for a match, for a pay-per-view, for a house show, you know, anything, you have to have them. It's so integral that if I you go to an independent wrestling card, okay, I, which I have been to several, half the time, this is not being taped. This is not for a TV audience. You will hear a microphoned up commentary in a lot of house shows where you're listening to a commentator over fucking speakers while the match is going on. Because for some reason, they've decided it leads to so much of the presentation of the match that it needs to be piped into the house show as well. So I just want to throw it out there, Dave. And that's that's what I'd like to talk about tonight. All right. Well, I would say commentary in pro wrestling is
0: the soundtrack to the movie. And it can, like when you have Jim Ross during the Hell in the Cell between Foley and Taker, it can absolutely elevate an already... um, incredible moment, or if it's Michael Cole most of the time, it can be absolutely horrible and ruin what otherwise would have been a good moment. And Cole actually is not always awful. I actually thought he did a very good job the night that Foley first won the title. I wish Jim Ross had been there to call it, but um, where he was... You know, talking about how this is for anybody who, you know, had had ever been told you can't do it or whatever. Like, I thought Cole was actually pretty good in that moment. But for the most part, like, especially nowadays, he's basically unlistenable, Uh, especially with Vince in his ear. But that's a whole we'll get to that momentarily. So great ones that I thought, like, obviously, uh, Gorilla Monsoon and, and Bobby Heenan, Gorilla Monsoon and Jesse Ventura were were just great pairings I was not a as big of a fan of Jim Ross and Jerry Lawler simply because Jerry Lawler I always thought was cringy on commentary um but Jim Ross I was always a huge fan of regardless of who he's paired with I even liked him and Ventura and apparently the two of them did not really care for each other at all um but for the brief time that they did commentary together I actually tremendously enjoyed them um I think it always worked best when you had the play-by-play guy and the color guy or the play-by-play guy and the heel color guy, which Ventura was always one of, the, one of the best at. And Heenan, I thought, was great in WWF. I thought, especially during the latter time of WCW, there were times where I thought he actually was hurting more than he was helping. Um, when he was motivated, he was great. When he wasn't, it was pretty painfully obvious. Those are my initial yeah. thoughts. And Shivani, I always thought has been underrated, but his, his WCW days were always, you know, hounded by him always saying, this is the greatest night in the history of our great blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, he had Bischoff in his ear telling him to just say a whole bunch of stupid shit, like fully winning the title, wouldn't put butts in the seats and stuff. But just by himself, I think Shivani is, is very frequently overlooked and that's a little bit unfair to him.
1: Absolutely. You know, I want to go back in, in time and give a little bit of that Pro Wrestling 101 again uh, for, for a few things out there. Um, first of all, uh, before we even get started, uh, there is a commentator uh, and an interview guy out there called Gordon Soley. The Walter who,
0: Cronkite of Professional Wrestling
1: absolutely who down in Georgia championship wrestling Florida championship wrestling was a mainstay for decades that a bar was was raised really really high in the fact that he seemed to be it seemed, first of all at a time where kayfabe was huge he called it like it was real. It didn't seem theatrical. And he really lent himself to what would be commentary going forward in the wrestling universe. So I want to give just acknowledgement to Gordon Soli that this is a human being that really contributed in a solid way to professional wrestling. Absolutely. Um, also, I just want to go back and say that when Vince McMahon's dad uh, owned you know, fully the WWWF, uh, his main co- guy that did the commentation was, um, I believe his name was Roy Morgan, Ray Morgan is Ray Morgan. And Ray Morgan, of course, th- uh, did many years with um, Vince McMahon Sr. And basically held him up for money one night. And Vince McMahon Sr. was like, mm-hmm, yeah, you're fired. And got rid of Ray Morgan after years of service. Ray Morgan, you know, he basically said I want more money and and Vince senior called his bluff and out of nowhere, you know, here you got Vince McMahon Jr., the Vince McMahon that you know, uh dear listeners, uh basically he just looked at him and said, "You know what? You're going to you're going to do this tonight." And Vince had no fucking skill set to do this at all. He had no uh experience commentating matches, not a fucking thing, doing interviews, fucking nothing. The interesting part about Vince McMahon is he is like a Terminator. He's like a self learning computer. And over the years in the 70s, if you watch WWF shows, Vince got better. Like you can listen to him and go, well, that's not bad. It's not great, but he is always got something to say. He's never without words. He's embellishing the product. He's saying what he needs to fucking say so that by the time the 80s came around, as you would know it as the WWF, Vince is a very polished performer now. Not just future, you know, megalomaniac of the wrestling universe. His contributions as a stick guy and as a commentator on matches, Vince is pretty fucking good. He
0: had a a good voice for it as well.
1: He had a good, he had a very good announcer voice. He was never without words. He would go to the same gimmick comments and phrases sometimes, but goddamn, who doesn't? Jesus Christ, have you listened to us? So the thing is that I do have to give Vince McMahon credit as a commentator. That in his own right as a performer, I'm not talking about Vince McMahon the man or the boss. Now I'm talking about him as a performer. Vince is not that bad. You can listen to him and go, well, that's pretty fucking good. You would think that he, as you were led to believe in the early mid 80s, that he was hired as this functional performer person in the company. A lot of people did not know that he was in charge here. Okay. Okay. So I have to give a lot of credit to Vince, which laid down the groundwork for what was to come. Also, Gorilla Monsoon, who had been around the industry forever, was always very good commentating matches. I think that I get goosebumps to this day when I see where Hulk Hogan wins, you know, in January of 1984, and Gorilla Monsoon's commentating, and at the end of that, where Hogan is lifting up the belt, you will hear Gorilla Monsoon say, Hulkamania is here and the way he says it is like you don't have to tune into any other fucking program wrestling or not ever again destiny has finally come here he says it so well that to this day i get goosebumps because he's ushering in an era with his words that even hogan just looking at him in what he's doing in the ring is not as like I mean, it gives me a fucking stiffy to fucking hear it. And I'm not a Hulk Hogan fan. It's Leary Gorilla Monsoon saying, bitches, we, are, we have arrived. Welcome to the next 10 years of what we're going to do here. Without him even knowing what the next 10 years was going to be, you can hear it in Gorilla Monsoon's voice like, we have goddamn done it and here we go. It's just, uh, I get goosebumps just fucking talking about it. But the thing is that when they started doing the duos and they teamed people up, Jesse Ventura, his wrestling career was fucking over. Vince Credit again said, We need a heel commentator. Roddy had done it back in Georgia. Some other people had fucking done it already, but we're going to do it on the big stage here in New York. They gave it to Jesse Ventura, who did a. Oh my God. Jesse, I'm a fan of Jesse Ventura, not from his wrestling career. I'm not like, yes, I like watching him wrestle and I like his character and I, yes. It's his, when he became a commentator is when I fell in love with Jesse Ventura. It was his, the way he spoke, the way his mind worked, how on, like he was so funny, so intelligent and so on the spot in the moment, every match, every time you're seeing a man do what he was fucking designed to do. Like this for this heel commentator siding with the bad guys and having a lot of times better commentary than... The person he was with is fantastic. It was amazing. And so I think that uh, Vince put him with Gorilla Monsoon at the beginning, saw what Jesse could do once the nervousness got out of Jesse and went, yeah, fuck that. It's going to be me and Jesse. Because he realized, well, this is the A-team. Then Heenan was moved with Gorilla Monsoon, which, well, we know what fucking happened there. Bobby Heenan with Gorilla Monsoon was a great commentary, and then the duo had primetime wrestling, which is the entire 80s to me. Wrestling in the 80s is primetime wrestling. It really is, and those two could set up a fucking match or have a segment with, I mean, the Ultimate Warrior versus Bob Bobsworth from Toledo, and they would have you, you were going to watch it after they talked about it. So, they were absolutely fantastic. One of my favorite
0: um, long-standing. I'm assuming it was done as a rib, but either way, it's hilarious when you actually know the story. Now, Gorilla Monsoon's son, unfortunately, died rather tragically young in a, in a car accident, but for a long time, he was a referee with the WWF, Joey Morella, because that is Gorilla Monsoon's real name, is Gino uh, uh, Morella. Um, and so... Jesse, whenever he was commentating with Gorilla Monsoon, as soon as Morella was refereeing a match, he would immediately start bagging on how stupid that referee is. He's like, Wait a minute, that's that referee, Joey Morella. Who allowed that moron into the ring, Monsoon? You know, and, and you know, Gorilla couldn't acknowledge it in any kind of way that that was his son. <laughs> I always thought that must have been a rib on Jesse's
1: part, but whoever it came was. up with
0: it, it was, it was brilliant.
1: Jesse was... Just amazing, dude. Every time the bad guy was doing something in the ring, he would justify it every single time. You ever want to see Jesse Mark out? Watch him commentate a Paul Orndorff match, a Rick Rude match, a Roddy Piper match. Like he's sticking up for him a hundred percent. We never knew that this would actually become like pretty much what you hear from the Republican Party today. But he could justify any insanity that was fucking happening, and you would die laughing. Because you know that he's in the wrong, but he's making such an adamant case that he's not. And the wrestler in there doing the wrongdoing is in the right. It was fantastic. But yeah, Gorilla Monsoon uh, soon met with Bobby Heenan. And that was the dynamic fucking duo. Those two together were pure magic, pure magic. And primetime wrestling to this day, there are so many times, my God, when we did Jason's hideout, all I thought about is, if we could just make this sort of like primetime wrestling that's really all I fucking care about I just want to grow up to host primetime wrestling this is all I ever gave a shit about in my future career endeavors the, and that's because of Heenan and Gorilla Monsoon.
0: well the pinnacle of them I think was also the Royal Rumble 92 when it was the winner of the Royal Rumble won the title and and Heenan was so unabashedly cheerleading for Flair throughout the entire match and Gorilla just fucking with him the entire time because it, yeah. he thought there's no way in hell Flair would end up winning it that dynamic I think really elevated that match to an even higher level than what it already was at from strictly a talent in ring mm-hmm. perspective.
1: The thing is that what told great the story. About, it did tell the story, and that's a great fucking match to watch. A because it's probably the greatest of all time, but number two because they're commentating. But d- their dynamic of Bobby Heenan being so goddamn intelligent, and he was. I mean. The brain was a gimmick, but not by much. He was that fucking quick. Even Roddy Piper said that Heenan's mind worked so much faster than his own. And that's fucking saying something. That he felt like a dumb blonde around Bobby Heenan because his mind worked that quick. He was so fucking quick. He could have made it in other aspects of the entertainment industry. He was just a gift to professional wrestling that he was there. And then for Gorilla Monsoon to have this... Almost, it was the straight man in the in the duo. Yeah, he could conjole Bobby Heenan, but at the same time, he knew how to. They knew how to give each other material, and it almost looked like two best friends that fucking got on each other's nerves. And it just worked. It fucking worked. To this day, I get goosebumps thinking about those two. Now, later on, what's funny that you and me just or you just said uh, uh, something, Dave. I didn't even know. Uh, is that you were not the biggest fan of Jerry Lawler. When the Attitude Era came along and Jim Ross became the voice of the Attitude Era, I have to say the exact same thing. Jim Ross is so fucking good at telling a story with his commentating, whether it's with Steve Austin, which he's absolutely known for now, or Mick Foley, Taker, Whatever that, even with Brett, absolutely is that I sometimes forget. That Jerry Lawler was sitting next to him during this commentary. And yes, well, I think you said cringeworthy or something to that nature. And you might have even been, I don't know, I won't put words in your mouth like I normally do, but maybe saying that some of the sexist things he was saying and that kind of shit. Because, yeah, looking yeah, was back, tiresome. Now, you're like, that I didn't, is I didn't crazy.
0: need to hear him screaming puppies over and over again. And like, I thought it was right. dumb the first time I heard it. And then it became like a thing that he would just repeat over and over again every week. I'm like, that's just. Turn his mic off. Just let Ross do his thing.
1: Well, right. But I was even saying even more than that is Ross just didn't need him. Like Jim Ross could sit there with nobody with him and put a fucking microphone on him and he'll call that match like he's talking to, you know, 50 million people. He doesn't need anyone helping him. He doesn't need Vince. He doesn't need Michael Cole. He doesn't need Jerry Lawler. That's fucking saying something. He doesn't even need to work off of somebody to make the story happen. That's how goddamn good Jim Ross is with his commentary. And it's funny now looking back that when he got hired from WCW and brought over to WWF that Vince was kind of cringed out by his, you know, Southern Texas accent or Oklahoma accent that he had and gave him the gimmick of the black velvet hat and all this stuff. And, you know, because who knew that years later, Jim Ross is up there with, I mean... You know, it's like Gordon Solie and Jim Ross for Christ's sake. Yeah. You know, this is what this is what people say is the best of all time. This is after he had a stroke. It's after he had Bell's palsy and Jim Ross can still tell a better story than anybody out there ever has. He doesn't need a heel commentator, a color guy to even play off of. So Jerry Lawler, I was never really impressed with him at all, but what's even more amazing about it is when I re- when I think of the Attitude Era, And I don't know how the listeners, the dozens are out there. I really don't think of Jerry Lawler. I think of Jim Ross. Like he was there by himself. That's how good he was. So credit to fucking Jim Ross, honestly. And then Michael Cole, who became this, you know, the corporate commentator. The voice
0: of WWE.
1: Yeah, I think that he, uh, Jim Ross said something about him that I had to respect. He said, listen. I know people don't enjoy his style, but it's what he's been given to do. And you have Cold. to remember the the old man is in his ear telling him he's got to get in 15 different promotional items. He's got to talk about tie-ins, lead-ins. He goes, when we were in the Attitude Era... Yes, Vince was in your ear, but he it was about what you're seeing in the ring. Now, Michael Cole's being yelled at by the old man to remember to say this about this thing that has nothing to do with the match. And it goes on the entire length of the match. So he goes, I do have to give credit to Michael Cole that he can somehow be yelled at the entire match in a headset and still be able to sound, you know, intelligible. And like, basically... Call a match. So, no, I don't like Michael Cole. I think he's boring as shit, but you do have to remember he's a puppet and the puppeteer is controlling almost every syllable the man says. So credit where credit is due. I do want to talk about WCW real quick back in the, you know, Monday Night Wars. Yes, I also think that Tony Schiavone was underrated. I can't stand him marking out about Sting, but that's a whole nother thing. Mike Taney, when he became a full time commentator, I thought was amazing. Mike Taney yeah. was, you know, dubbed the professor, and he did have information that you just normally didn't fucking get from anybody. He was almost like a Gordon Solie giving you stats figures, where they trained, how they learned to move. I have to give Mike Taney a lot of credit. So, you know, there and then Larry Zabisco, who I thought Larry Zabisco brought that old vet, badass mentality that could, you know, at times, yeah, he could do heel, but really he was good on commentary, ranting against the NWO. So with the three of them, Tony Schiavone, Mike Taney, and Larry Zabisco, I thought it was a hell of a team. I really fucking do. And I don't think they got the kind of credit that that they deserved and certainly they're almost not talked about at all anymore. I mean, we know Tony came back uh for for AEW, which is amazing. And I think a lot of people like him more now than they they ever have. But I can tell you folks out there, when you're watching a pro wrestling match, the invisible magic that's happening in front of you that you sometimes don't realize is making the match is what you're hearing, what you're listening to. So, you know, I wanted to also say that we've seen a lot of wrestlers out there that are great promo cutters too. Roddy Piper, okay? Superstar Billy Graham, Randy Macho Man Savage. These are some of the best promo cutters, best interview guys out there and who honestly I, in my opinion and some others did a very substandard job in what they were given to do as commentators. And I know that a lot of it was just Vince telling them to do it, but I want you to know how important and talented the commentation has to be. It's not just someone that can speak well, embellishing themselves as a wrestler. It's gotta be somebody that can tell the story in the ring.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I I remember, uh, when it was the I Quit match between Terry Funk and Ric Flair on Clash of the Champions, that was on TBS, they brought Gordon, Gordon Soley. He was still doing stuff periodically with the NWA at that point, but they, they brought him in specifically to call the match with Jim Ross. And he very simply in the beginning, as they were talking about the stakes of the match, said very simply, uh, what was it? it was five letters, two words.
1: I quit. <laughs> and it was just like that's a that's a good imitation dude that's not bad i'm usually the imitation guy but that was not bad buddy it was it was it was pretty epic um so yeah i think that's our show for the week jason anything anything else you want to add no guys i just want to let you know hey we are giving out our little uh you know secret Annie, little orphan Annie decoder ring out there, a little gift from one day closer to dead to all of our wonderful listeners out there. All you got to do is contact us, send us a name, send us a mailing address. No matter where you are on this fucking planet, we will get you something. I mean, Dave Baudry's hair or something. I don't have any. So I don't know what's going to come to you, but it's going to be a thank you to you from us for listening to us at least partially or maybe all of these hundred episodes that are coming down the pike. Thank you very much. And, of course, you can always send that to this email address that uh, is going away. So it's, it's all very Dark Knight Returns here. It's all burning down in colossal glory. It is as follows. Ask Dave and Jason at Excite.com. Because, well, God damn it. It's exciting.
0: And fuck you, Dr. Cosby.
1: And fuck you, Dr. Cosby.
0: And on that note, I am Dave Beaudry. And I am still your Jason Bailey. And Tuesday, Job Guys will be on YouTube. And that is our show. We are one day closer to dead, but that day is not. It will not be today.
1: So until next week.